Good morning, second service. Hey, uh, Kevin and Nick, could I ask a favor? Could you bring up the whiteboard for me when you get a chance here? How's everybody doing? Good. Well, it is great to see you guys. Uh, I mentioned this the first service. I want to mention it to you guys. I was talking to my wife this uh, last weekend about you guys, and uh, we were just talking about how amazing this church family is. You guys are some of the most dearest most special people in our lives, and the privilege that we have to be able to do life with you is, is beyond anything we could ever imagine. So thank you for being you. Thank you for being uh, men and women who love Jesus and who are seeking Jesus. And so I just want to let you know I love you very, very much. And I know you probably get sick of me telling you this, but I'm going to keep saying it to you, so get used to it. But it's great to, great to have you here today. All right, guys, we are still in the middle of our series on piercing the darkness. Thank you, guys. Uh, and we've covered a lot of material. Um, I don't have time to cover it all, but I'm just going to kind of do a brief run-through. But the whole premise of this series was based off the fact that we need to pierce the darkness with the light of Jesus wherever uh, we go. And we started off this series looking at a passage in Ephesians that, um, where the Apostle Paul tells us some pretty important words. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you need a pen, hold up a couple fingers like that, and they'll, they'll get that to you. But let's, let's look at this passage again. It's in Ephesians 5, it says... For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So because you're light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So Paul's saying, listen, we are children of light, therefore we must walk as children of light. And guys, when children of light walk as children of light in a very dark world, it pierces the kingdom of darkness. Amen? Unfortunately, we don't see that happening all that much in our world today by Christians. Often, as we've said, a lot of times Christians and non-Christians don't look much different. And we talked about how there's something very, very wrong with that picture. It should be as stark as light versus darkness. Their lives should be so different. We then moved right into the Great Commission, that verse hanging on the wall, those two verses there, where Jesus basically shows us a practical way that we can pierce the kingdom of darkness. We go and we make disciples of Jesus, we baptize them into the name of the Trinitarian God, and we teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So we spent a great deal talking about the need to make disciples rather than focus on making converts. Okay? We found that the church has been focusing on making converts when Jesus tells us to make disciples. Nowhere does Jesus tell us to go make converts. He tells us to make disciples. Okay? Now, what's interesting is if we make disciples, converts naturally happen. But if we make just converts, sometimes disciples happen, but sometimes they don't. And that's not a good thing. We then went into several weeks of talking about the gospel and how we have to be very careful about the gospel that we present, that it is truly the gospel of Jesus, that people understand that they are putting their faith and their trust into Jesus and not just something that he did, okay? When we put our trust in Jesus, we will follow him. We will apprentice ourselves after him because we believe in him. We then talked about the cross and everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross. We took some time to look at some fancy theological words that many of us have never heard of before, but when we hear them explained and see the power of them, we are so incredibly thankful for Jesus that he accomplished those things for us. We then talked about the resurrection 
And we talked about how the resurrection sealed all these powerful truths. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, none of these truths would be available to us. But he did raise from the dead. And so therefore, they are available to, uh, to us all. And hopefully it greatly encouraged us to, as, as to understand that. Then last week, we had one last theological sermon, which we talked about what it means to be born again. We talked about how when we put our faith in Jesus, we are regenerated. We are made spiritually alive, and the Spirit of God comes and dwells in us. We're reconnected back to our source. And then we're able, by God's grace, to be sanctified, which means to be made more and more holy as we apply effort in our Christian life. God's power works along with us in accomplishing things that we could never do on our own. And more and more, in bit by bit, we grow in holiness and we take on the image of Christ. And as we do that, we shine in ever-increasing glory more and more on this earth as we look more and more like Jesus. And we talked about how this is a present-day glorification, but one day there's going to be a final glorification where we will be just like Jesus, shining forth in all of his glory, and what an amazing day that will be. All of this, all these weeks we've covered about, all, all of the content we've talked about is the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. All of it's included. The gospel of Jesus is not some little package deal that comes with three quick little points. No, the good news of Jesus is everything that has to do with Jesus, and hopefully we're seeing that, okay? But today, we're going to back up to the Great Commission, and we're going to take some time to practically discuss how we can make disciples of Jesus in our current lives. That's the whole point of this series, okay? And hopefully, this will help us really engage in that activity. How do we make disciples of Jesus? All right, now, before we talk about the how, I'm going to back up first and just revisit something we talked about way back at the beginning, okay? And let me ask you all just a question as a refresher, okay? Whose job is it to make disciples of Jesus? Is it all of ours or is it just the pastors? All of ours, okay? So to begin with, let's just be reminded, it is all of ours responsibility to make disciples, not just the pastors. Does everybody agree? Okay. So let's get into it. Now, for those of you who grew up in church or any form of Christianity, you will know that going out and spreading the gospel is a big part of what being a Christian is all about, right? In fact, it is given a word in Christianity. Does anyone know what that word is? Witnessing, what's another word? Evangelism, exactly. Now, evangelism means to preach the gospel to or to convert to Christianity. Now, there are all sorts of evangelism tools and techniques and, and styles and classes. You can even go to conferences to be, um, in a sense, stamped with, you, you've got this technique down, and, and it's all a, to learn a certain presentation to be able to convince someone of their faulty thinking and teach them what is the truth so that they'll be convinced to change their minds and profess to believe in what you're teaching them about Christianity. And we all know that churches and, and groups of Christians, they have resorted to all sorts of ways on how to spread the gospel. Some will go door to door. Remember that? People will come up and they'll knock on the door and be like, hello, uh, this is John and I, my name's Luke, we're from Whitestone, and could we just spend a few minutes talking to you today? And they'll be like, uh, sure, come on in, and they'll let us in. Some people, that's how they do their evangelism. Some people will walk them all, and they'll just look for some little guy, lone guy, they'll be like, 
come up to him real quick and say, hey, do you mind if I talk to you? This just happened to me the other day. I uh, was taking Shauna out. We were going to go out on a date, and she wanted to stop by the mall and look for something at some store. And you know how it is, guys, when wives are looking for something in a store, and you're just sitting in the lady's place just kind of like, oh, man, feeling like an idiot. So I'm like, honey, there's some cushy chairs outside that have little massages uh, in the mall. I'm going to go sit down there while you're looking for your little things here. And so I get out there, and I didn't sit for 30 seconds, and some dude saw me, and he comes up to me, and he goes, hey, uh, we're doing a little survey. Do you mind if I ask you some questions? And in my mind, I'm going, yeah, right, you are. You're not asking some survey. You're trying to use this as a little sneaky way to get in and talk to me. So just very quickly, I says, what church are you from? And he's like, oh, and I I nailed But, you know, I didn't even get into a long conversation because my wife came to the window holding a pair of pants like, Luke, you want this? And I'm like, oh, my wife's calling me. i got to go. So I went in there. (laughs) But that's how some people will do their evangelism. Uh, Other people will walk on the sidewalks and they'll, you know, stop somebody and say, hey, do you mind if I talk to you for five minutes? And they'll they'll get into their little spiel with that. Okay? Uh, And a lot of times when we engage in that activity, we felt pretty good about ourselves because we are spreading the gospel. We're doing Jesus' work. We're out making converts to Christianity and rescuing people from hell. And when we do that, we felt pretty good about ourselves. Now, I'm not going to bash that. I'm not going to say that that is wrong. I know people that have come to Christ through those kinds of avenues. God can, and he will use anything to reach people. However, I will say this, and I'm sharing my own opinion here, I think that kind of witnessing or that kind of evangelizing or whatever you want to call it, I think that is the least effective way to reach people for Christ. For, for someone to just come knocking on your door on some summer Saturday when you only get like six Saturdays a year where it's sunny out here in Wisconsin and they're knocking on your door saying, hey, do you mind if I come in and talk to you? You're like, ah, I'd really rather you not, but... I'm not going to be rude and kick you out, so you let them in. I don't know about you, but I don't like when people come to my door and want to take my time. So it gives them people a bad taste of like, what are these people all about? And I'm in the, when I'm at the mall and I'm having a little date time with my wife, I don't want some guy to drop into my time and to be, you know, asking me some survey with what, you know, some questions he had. That bothers me. And I'm a Christian. So imagine if you're not a Christian and somebody's, you know, coming up to you. I don't find that effective. And once again, I'm just saying that's my opinion. When somebody's, you know, stops me on a sidewalk and wants to ask me a question, once again, I find that little invasive of my time. And all of these situations put people in an awkward situation where some people, because they can't say no, they got through your little presentation just to get through it. And often, once again, this is my opinion, it leaves a really poor taste in people's mouths, minds, about Christians and therefore Jesus. Now, why do I mention this? Here's why. Why do we feel it necessary to go and do these kinds of presentations when here all along, God has us in very unique positions in life already where we could be doing it on a daily basis? For instance, we talked about this at the beginning of the series. Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. Where is it that we are to go and make disciples? What did we talk about? In the circles of our kingdom. Remember that? Let's kind of just re- revisit that if we can. We, we talked about ever-widening circles in our kingdom. What's the center circle? It is me. 
Okay, I'm at the center of that circle there of my kingdom. What's the next circle? Family. Okay, what's the next circle? Okay, it's actually money and possessions, but a lot of times money and possessions can be our friend. Okay, then the next one, what is it? It's actually our work. Now, somebody keeps yelling friends. What's the next circle? <laughs> friends and community. There you go. Okay. Those are the circles of our kingdom. Every single one of us have circles of influence like this in our life. Okay? Well, God, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. Where are we supposed to do that? In the circles of our influence. As you go... Make disciples in each one of these circles. So let's just briefly talk about those circles and walk through them as we think about this making disciples. Okay? What's the very first circle? Me. Me. Okay? Guys, the first and primary place that we start making disciples of Jesus is with ourselves. We must be following Jesus. We must be apprenticing ourselves after Jesus before we can lead others to be following Jesus. You, you can't make disciples of Jesus if you're not a disciple of Jesus first. It starts with us, okay? This is the most important circle to address in making disciples. And let me explain why. If you aren't following Jesus, how in the world do you intend on getting others to follow Jesus? How do you intend on getting others to believe in Jesus if you don't yourself? Nobody likes a hypocrite. Nobody likes a pretender. Your words will fall flat if your life is not living out what you're sharing. Once again, in my opinion, this is the reason why we go to the malls. This is the reason we go door to door or street witnessing to share Christ with others. Because it doesn't require a life of example. These people we're talking to don't know us from Adam. They don't know the life we're living. Our center circle could be an absolute mess and we could still give the presentation and nobody would know the difference. So we can fake it and we can act like we're something that we're not. But the people in our circles of influence, they know us. We don't get away with it there. Therefore, we must focus on this center circle first and foremost. It's an absolute must when we make disciples within the other circles. Okay, so Whitestone, it starts with us. Never forget that. Second circle is what? Your family, okay? Now, for those of you who are married, this involves your spouse. If your spouse is not a believer, if she, he or she doesn't believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, then that is a circle you must focus on. Now, granted, making disciples in this circle is hard. Making a disciple with your spouse, it's tricky business, they know you inside and out. They know your faults. They know all your mistakes. And they will often point that against you. They'll use it against you. Guys, I'll tell you, nowhere is it more important to live a holy, pure life than it is in your marriage. Because your life will be closely watched. It just will. We can all fake it to a certain degree with the public. We can hide our dark spots. We can hide our character faults. The general public doesn't usually get to see that in us. We can hide that. But with our wife, with our husband, you can't hide all that well. When you live together day after day, they know you. They know your faults. They will experience it. 
I remember when I was just first dating Shauna and we were engaged that first year of engagement. I mean, she thought I was the cat's meow. She really did. I remember she was talking to her dad saying, Dad, Luke is he's an amazing man. He doesn't burp. He doesn't make other noises. He never gets angry. He's always happy. And, and her dad's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we got married. And it wasn't one month into our marriage, suddenly she began to realize I was an angry man. And I remember we were driving to church one Sunday night, and it all erupted. And we had all started from some dumb little argument. We had decided ahead of time that we weren't going to have a TV in our first year of marriage. We were just going to get to know each other and really, you know, get involved in each other's life and just not spend time watching the, the television. So we decided that ahead of time. Well, one month in the marriage, I think Shauna got bored with me, and she's like, I want to watch TV. <laughs> and so we're driving to church one Sunday night, and she's like, Luke, I think we should get, you know, we should hook up our TV to the antenna. I'm like, honey, we talked about this. Uh, for the first year of marriage, we're not going to do that. She goes, yeah, but I decided let's just change that. I'm like, well, we already decided it, so we're not going to do that. She's like, mm, I, think we, I think we are going to do that. And I'm like, mm, I don't think we are going to do that. And she's like, well, I'll just hook it up myself. I'm like, mm, good luck with that. You don't know how to hook it up. She goes, well, fine, then I'll just get my dad to hook it up. We're going back and forth. Eventually, I snapped. And I went, shut up! And I scream as we're driving. She starts crying. We pull in the church parking lot and do a Yui and drive right back home. We never made it to church that night. She began to realize that she married an angry man. I couldn't hide it anymore, okay? There, there's a verse in 1 Peter that addresses wives, but the principle of the verse could very well be assumed upon husbands. Principle is the same. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The point being, let your conduct with your spouse be your message. When they see Christ lived out in your life, it will have the greatest impact. So married people, let that be your first mission field if you are married. Next is your children. Once again, this is not an easy one either. Your kids know you inside and out. They see how you behave in the household. When I was a youth pastor, it was amazing how many young kids would say, Luke, if you really knew my dad, he's not the man that shows up on Sunday. He's a completely different guy at the house. I mean, he is not, he does not act or live like a Christian. Kids see that. They're not dumb. I remember when my kids were like six, eight, and ten. Uh, I had them sit down in the living room, and I was going to do a little experiment to just kind of see how I was doing as a dad, and I wanted to kind of get a report card, because I you know I'd been trying to change some of the things in my life, and so I asked my kids, I'm like, hey kids, uh, how's, how am I doing as a dad? I mean, just be honest, you can be honest with, with me, just tell me how I'm doing. Fully expecting that they're going to give me like an A+. Plus. I, I thought I was going to get that. And they're like, uh, you're pretty angry. I'm like, what? So I go to the, I'm like, really? You think I'm angry? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're an angry guy. I'm like, I'm not angry. And they're like, yeah, Dad, you, you're really angry. So I turn to my wife. I'm like, Sean, am I really angry? He's like, yeah, Luke, actually, you really are. I'm like, what in the world? See, I couldn't hide from my kids. They saw the real me. I wasn't fooling my kids. 
So when making disciples with your kids, it's so important that this center circle gets focused on. Okay? You'd better be following Jesus yourself. But guys, I tell you, making disciples with your kids is such an important part of your life of making disciples. They are a key part of your kingdom, so you must take that seriously. And let me tell you something. You can start early with your kids. You'd be amazing how young you can start with your kids. You'll find that small children will pick up the idea of discipleship to Jesus far quicker than any adult because the kingdom of God must be approached with the heart of a child. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So take it seriously. Disciple your children. The next circle is our money and our possessions. And as we know, our money and our possessions actually belong to who? God. There is. So with our money and our possessions, we need to ask God how he wants to spend his money in regards to making disciples in your circles. Where does he want you to spend it on? What does he want you to spend it on? I know of a young couple who they were youth leaders in their church. They weren't hired by the church. They did it on the side. They poured thousands of dollars into that ministry because they were making disciples of Jesus. And that's what Jesus asked them to do, and they did it. The next circle is your workplace. Now, it's funny. Our workplace, often we just consider our workplace a place where we show up for a certain number of hours a day, and then we go home, and we just do this day in and day out just to make a living. But no ministry happens there. Well, I want us to change our viewpoint on that because nothing is further from the truth. That should be our main ministry place. At the beginning of the series, we made it clear that every single one of us are involved in ministry. It's not just pastors or missionaries that are in ministry. All of us are. If you are a follower of Jesus, understand this. You're in ministry. And your workplace is a great place for that to happen. Only you have that special location to shine for the kingdom of God in your life. I, as a pastor, do not work at Baird Financial, but some of you do. God wants to use you in that circle to extend his kingdom. I, as a pastor, do not work at Fleet Farm, but some of you do. And God wants to use you there. I don't work as a traveling salesman across this nation and the world beyond, but some of you do. And God wants to use you as you do that. And on and on it goes. You get my point. You are in ministry. And listen to me. Your workplace is one of the key places to make disciples. It's a place where you spend most of your waking hours. Therefore, it's an important mission field. We must take advantage of it. And once again, it's important that you live out this circle, that you're following Jesus in that circle because you're being watched. The last circle is our community. And this circle includes our friends, our neighbors, our acquaintances, or anyone else that we meet going through life. Now, in this circle, it requires more intentionality because you aren't always with these people like you are at work. So times with these people must be planned but it's still a very important circle of influence in our lives that we can use to extend his kingdom. So, these are the circles of your influence. These are the circles of your kingdom. And Whitestone, it is my opinion that this is the primary place that we're to be making disciples. I believe we're called to go make disciples in these areas. Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. And that's where to, where to do it, okay? 
Now, if you want to go out and evangelize in those other ways we mentioned earlier, be my guest, but don't do it at the neglect of all of these in your life, okay? God has you in their lives. He wants you to use you in their lives, so don't ignore it, okay? Now, let's take some time to discuss how we are to approach the whole idea of making disciples. And the things we're going to be discussing will apply to every one of these circles. You may have to tweak it some, but it'll apply to all of them. For those of you who are note takers, you may want to pull out your notes because I'm going to go through quite a bit of stuff here. Um, And maybe if you just want to take a picture with your phone, you can do that too. But the first thing I want to encourage you to do seems kind of strange, but I want you to ask God who he wants you to focus on. Here's what I mean by that. We all know a lot of people, okay? And I don't know about you, but when I think about all the people in my life that don't know Jesus, it can be daunting and almost even overwhelming for me to think, how am I going to reach all these people? Well, chances are you will not be able to reach them all. And God may not be asking you to reach them all. God may want to use you to just reach a certain few. I think of Jesus. Thousands upon thousands of people followed Jesus everywhere he went, but Jesus only chose 12 men to be his disciples. 12 men that he poured his life into and he taught them what it meant to follow him and then how to go out and do the same thing. And these 12 men turned into 120. And these 120 turned into 5,000. And these 5,000 turned into 8,000. And on and on it went. And it exploded throughout the world. So don't think that focusing intently on just a few is a bad thing. No, God can use those few to reach the world. Amen? Now, if you pay attention, Jesus didn't just go, all right, uh, any, many, many, mo, I pick you. Any, many, many, mo, I pick you. He didn't just pick these disciples willy-nilly. Let me show you how he chose his disciples. In Luke chapter six, it says, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. How long? All night. And when day came, he call, called his disciples, and he chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Do you see that? He spent all night with his father saying, God, Father, who is it that I choose? Who do you want me to choose? Now here's the point I want to make. I think it is a great idea to ask God who he wants us to minister to. Who is the people in our life that we can laser onto rather than try to reach the multitudes? It's better to be intentional with a few than sporadic with many. It's like quail hunting. I'm sorry if you guys don't like hunting, but I used to hunt quail in, in Arizona. And you just walk through the desert, and there's just mesquite bush. You don't see the quail. You're just walking along. And all of a sudden, there's quail. There's like 30 or 40 will be in a covey, okay? And when they take off, it scares the liver out of you. They're like, and they all take off. And you're like, ah! It scares you. And you take the shotgun. And what I initially started doing is there'd be 30 or 40 flying, and I'd just shoot in the middle of the crowd. And guess what would happen? Nothing. I'm like, how did I miss? And remember, a hunter told me, he says, Luke, you always focus in on one. Always zero in on one. Don't just shoot into the crowd because you'll miss. You won't hit anything. Well, guys, God knows the best person for you to minister to. He will help you laser in on this, the people that need, you need to be focusing on. And so I encourage you, trust him and be obedient to, to, to that. Ask God how many and who he wants to use you to make disciples of Jesus with then be obedient and focus on those people. Lead them to Jesus. 
The next thing we need to do when approaching the people we're ministering to is we need to see them how God sees them. We must look at each person and see what's true about them in the unseen realm. This is a very important thing we do this. It helps us have the eyes of God when dealing with people. Guys, we're physical creatures, and often we're turned off by what we see or what we experience in the physical realm when it comes to people. But we must learn to see people with spiritual eyes. And these people, they are creations of God. And they have great worth. We need to see that. You know, often we will hear Christians use this phrase and it sounds super spiritual. I don't agree with it. But we will often say this. We're just worthless sinners. Worthless sinners saved by grace. And like I said, that sounds great. But guys, listen to me. There is no such thing as a worthless sinner in the human race. If humanity was worthless, then Jesus was an idiot to come to this earth to save mankind. Mankind is not worthless. At least to God it isn't. Every man and every woman has great worth to God. They are his creation. Now they may be very lost, but they're not worthless. It's a little bit like, you remember when the Powerball, when there was like $4 billion was going to be the winning Powerball ticket? You remember that? You guys are like, Luke, we don't pay attention to that stuff. That's, I didn't, didn't know about that. Okay. Well, I did. There was like a $4 billion Powerball at this time. Now, imagine that you went out and you bought a ticket for that, and guys, it happened to be the winning ticket. That ticket was worth $4 billion. But guess what? You couldn't remember where you put it. I'm going to ask you a question. That lost lottery ticket, how much is it worth? Think about this. How much is that lost lottery ticket worth? $4 billion, but it's still lost. It's the same with humanity. Men and women, they're worth everything, but they're lost. They need Jesus. Not only are they lost, they are spiritually dead. Remember how last week we talked about how sin spiritually disconnected us from God? But when we believe in Jesus, we're born again, we're regenerated, we're made alive, spiritually alive again. Once again, we're reconnected with God, our source. Remember that? Well, these people, they're still dead. They're not born again yet. They're not connected to their source. They are spiritually dead with no hope of life again, ever again, without Jesus. We have to see them like this. Not only that, guys, we need to see them that they're held captive in the kingdom of darkness. We need to see them as prisoners. Remember how I talked about how on the cross Jesus paid our ransom? We were prisoners in the kingdom of darkness and held captive by Satan, but Jesus, by shedding his blood on the cross, he paid our ransom on the cross. And when we, when we chose to believe in him, that ransom was the purchase price. And we got taken from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. Amen? That was true of us. We were ransomed. But these people aren't yet. They're still prisoners. They're still held captive to do the will of their captor. We must never forget that. And that is why they act the way they do. And how do they act? Well, they keep sinning. They sin and they sin and they sin. 
Because why? They're slaves to sin. That is their nature. By nature, they are sinful. And because that is their nature, they are slaves to it. And that's important that we know that. We're called to pierce the darkness with God's light. Well, guess what, second service? We're gonna be around a lot of darkness. The people that we're ministering to, they are dead. They are captive to the kingdom of darkness and they're slaves to sin. And sometimes it isn't a pretty picture to be around people living those kind of lives. There's a lot of damage. There's a lot of messed up lives and it's hard to be around it. But that's why they so desperately need Jesus. Amen? So how do we approach them? Well, we need to learn to take people where they're at. Each person is different. And therefore, it needs to be, we need to be, take care that we minister to them differently. It's just not one size fits all. It's a lot like raising kids. Those of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about. It's like each kid is different. It's like you just can't put one little size fits all on parenting. It's like, well, little Billy is a lot different than Sally, and Sally's a lot different than little Chrissy. And so I don't know, it's like everything's different for all three kids. It's the same with people. Each person is different. Therefore, we need to take care that we minister to them appropriately. This makes it tricky. Personalities are very important to understand when trying to lead someone to Christ. We must try to meet them where their personality would respond appropriately to it. Some people are serious. And when people are serious, they don't like jokesters. Some people are jokesters. They don't want to be around serious people. Some people want to dive deep and they'll talk about serious things quickly. Some take a long time before they let you behind their wall. Personalities are important to understand. What they enjoy in life and what they spend their time with. If you care about this person, you're going to make that a priority in your life. I remember I did a job for this older gentleman, and for some reason God connected us together, and I began to just check in on him and spend time with him. And this man, he loved NASCAR. I don't know the last thing about NASCAR. I actually am really bored with NASCAR because it's just like, it's like, this seems so boring. There's like 200 laps, seriously? Why don't they make it 10? You know, I don't get that. But because I cared about this person, I began to try to understand NASCAR and understand that there is actually, there's some science to it, how they're driving, what they're doing, and different racers. I mean, all I knew about racers is what I saw in the little Tony the Tiger cereal box of like, guy holding his helmet there, like, this is a guy I'm supported by, you know, sugar flakes. Well, I began to pour into that and understand because I cared about this guy. And I remember he, we were friends at the time when that Dale Earnhardt uh, senior guy, he crashed and died. That man wept. And it was a time to be able to minister to him. Now, I would have never paid attention to NASCAR if it wasn't for that guy. That's what we need to do. We need to take interest in what they are interested in, all for the sake of the kingdom. Status in society, as weird as that is, that's important. Some people are rich, some people are poor. Some are high class, some are low class. Guess what? All are precious in the sight of God. And we must meet them on whatever level they are on. To the rich and the high class, we have to try to understand where they're coming from. Maybe don't be talking all country with the high class. They won't get that. But with the poor, maybe don't talk about that you own five Corvettes and you spend half your year in Maui. That's not going to connect with them. 
If someone's a white-collar worker, meet them on that level. If someone's a blue-collar worker, meet them on that level. What I'm trying to say is that we need to meet people on their level and make connections with them on that level as best as we can. I just recently did a wedding, and the father of the bride was a billionaire, with a B, billionaire. Now, I don't really know how to connect with billionaires, but you know what I found out? They want to be loved just like anybody else wants to be loved. And I remember having a conversation when I felt the Spirit of God just say, go talk to him, and I did. And I tell you, he began, tears were beginning to shed, and I just realized, you know what? He just wants to be loved. Another reality to people, especially in this nation, is political viewpoints. We must accept where people are at politically and be willing to sidestep our own viewpoints for the sake of the kingdom of God. Be wise with this. I know how some people, their politics to them is just as important as their spiritual beliefs. And they're willing to die for them. I'm telling you, I find it appalling how some people really would rather not even talk or reach out to someone who has an opposing political viewpoint. As if politics even matters when it comes to a person's relationship with Jesus. If someone is lost, they need Jesus. So please, I beg you, set aside your political viewpoints for the sake of reaching this person for Jesus. I like how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. He says, I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. If you're a Democrat and God is asking you to bring Jesus to a Republican, then I beg you, set aside your political viewpoints for the sake of the kingdom of God. If you're a Republican and God is asking you to minister to a Democrat, by all means, set aside your political stances for the sake of the kingdom of God. It blows my mind how some people will literally refuse to do this. Don't be like that. Another thing about meeting people where they're at is that we must not make them come to us, we must come to them. Now I know that seems kind of weird, but here's what I mean. We have a culture in American Christianity where we ask them to come to us. I want you to come to my church. I want you to come to my Bible study. I want you to come to my men's group. I want you to come to my women's group. We make them come to us. Well stop, choose to go to them. Us choosing to come to them is a sign of love to them. You know, I think of Jesus. He ate with sinners. He drank with sinners. He went to the broken. He went to the beat up. He went to the damaged, hurting people, and he spent time with them. He didn't make them come to me, come to him. He didn't say, hey, guys, why don't you come to the synagogue and hang out with me? No, Jesus was often accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was hanging out with the worst of the sinners, eating and drinking with them. And they'd make fun of him for it. But he'd always respond like this. He'd say, tell me, who does the doctor need to go to? The sick, right? Well, that's why I came, to rescue the sick and to rescue the hurting. I came to save sinners. So guess where I need to be? Amongst the sinners. He went to them. I think of the story of Zacchaeus. Apparently he's a little short dude. And Jesus was walking on the road and there was just crowds and crowds of people and this little short dude couldn't see Jesus so he, he climbs up on this tree and he wants to get a view of Jesus and Jesus walks up to the tree and he goes, hey Zacchaeus, I want you to come down from that tree because what? I'm going to your house tonight. He didn't say, because I want you to come to my house tonight. 
He says, I'm going to yours. Let's meet them on their turf. Here's another key thing to consider. We can't force unbelievers to act like believers. This this is a big deal. Some Christians expect or even require non-Christians to act holy and to change their behavior. Listen to me very closely, second service. We aren't teaching behavior modifications. We're trying to lead them to someone who can completely regenerate and transform them. That someone is Jesus. But until then, they're going to act like sinners. That is who they are. That is their identity. A sinner will sin because that's who they are, a sinner. I know Christians who get so offended by non-Christians when they act like non-Christians, when they use foul language around them. They're like, oh my word, I can't stand being around and hearing them speak like that. I tell them, you either clean it up or I'm leaving. Can't believe what the men on my construction site talk about. It's so vile. Can't believe how messed up my neighbors are. I don't even like being around them. Guys, here's the problem. They're simply living out who they are. They can't live holy lives. They can't be righteous. It isn't in their nature. So don't make them. If you simply focus on behavior modification in a sinner's life rather than regeneration, it's the same as as you taking a pile of horse manure and covering it up with icing and dripping chocolate on it. It may look good on the outside, but it's still manure in the center. Same is true of a sinner. If Jesus does not regenerate them, they're still a sinner on the inside. That is their nature. They may act all good on the outside at times, but they're still messed up on the inside. What needs to happen first is regeneration. They have to be made spiritually alive, and only Jesus can do that in them. Until then, you can't ask a prisoner to live like he's a free person, because they aren't. They're still in chains. They have to be made new by Jesus. And guys, here's the great news. That's what Jesus does. He takes dead things and he makes them alive again. He takes prisoners and he sets them free. He takes messed up sinners and he transforms them into saints. Jesus is the one who brings transformation. That is who we must lead them to, not to behavior modification. If Jesus gets a hold of them, he will change them from the inside out. And second service, that is why we make disciples of Jesus, not disciples of a religion, not disciples of a set of rules and regulations, not disciples of a program. No, we make disciples of Jesus. And let me tell you something, when we make disciples of Jesus, these people's lives will begin to change. They will begin to transform. Let me show you how they will change. Let me show you how Jesus describes people who disciple themselves after him. In John 8, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. What do disciples do? They obey Jesus. John 13, it says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. What do disciples of Jesus do? They love one another. In John 15, 8, it says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. What do disciples do? They bear fruit, meaning they look like Jesus. And if we focus on leading people to Jesus and making disciples of Jesus, this will begin to happen in their lives. They begin to obey Jesus. 
They begin to live lives of love. They begin to look and live like Jesus. When someone believes in Jesus, they're regenerated. They're made spiritually alive. And the Spirit of God begins to transform them into people who image God more and more. So Whitestone, let's take this seriously. Let's approach making disciples of Jesus seriously. Now this isn't something that Jesus suggests to us. It's something that Jesus commands to us. Notice it do, what it doesn't say on that verse. It doesn't say, hey guys, I just want to really encourage you to go and make disciples. If you have the time, I'd encourage you to really do this. It doesn't say that. What does it say? Go. Go. Make disciples. Let's take it seriously. And let's take some time to ask God who the people in your circles he's asking you to focus in on. Then approach these people as Jesus would. Ask God to allow you to see them as he sees them. Understand that they have great value to God. They're not worthless. They're spiritually dead. They're prisoners to the kingdom of darkness. They're slaves to sin. We need to see that. But they're worth everything to God. We must meet them where they're at. We must be all things to all men that we might win some. And we must go to them. Don't make them come to us. Don't make them come to our church, our Bible study, our group. No, let's go to them. Let's meet them on their turf. Let's seek them out. And guys, what that may mean is that may mean that we have to go to some of the darkest places, meet with some of the most messed up people, messed up situations, we might have to experience the torment of seeing prisoners of darkness suffer all in order to reach these people for Jesus. Amen? I've always loved this quote. It's from a guy by the name of C.T. Studd. I cannot think of a better name than C.T. Studd. I wish I had that name. Listen to what this stud says. Some people want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. Not me. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Amen. Let's make disciples of Jesus wherever we are. That's what we're called to do. Next week, we're going to continue this conversation on how to approach making disciples, and hopefully we can continue to make it a natural part of who we are and what we do in everyday life. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray for every person here at Whitestone, that as followers of Jesus, that we might go out into this dark world and that we might take it seriously that you've asked us, you've commanded us to make disciples. So God, I pray that you would direct us to the key individuals in our circles of influence that you desire us to connect with and to lead to you. And we trust that you will do your miraculous part. It's just exciting that you are willing to let us be part of this. So we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our circles of influence as it would be in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, love you very, very much. Have an amazing week, and we'll see you next Sunday.